And now, for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PNR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Well, hello, content marketers. I'm Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 31 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded on Monday, June 16, 2014. We're a week away from summer, so spring on over to that iTunes-y thingamajig and give your little audio bundle of love here or review, would you? Come on, you know you want to. And you want to know something cool? We publish on Tuesdays, and the blog post doesn't go live till Saturday. So if you want even more timely rants, raves, wonderful stories from Joe and myself, we hope you'll consider subscribing via iTunes or Stitcher. Then you can relive all of the glory on Saturday afternoon with your headphones on, and you can pop on by thisoldmarketing.com, where you'll also find all the show notes and fully flavored picante awesome sauce we talk about here. Anyway, and also, as always, please welcome my good, good friend Clemming from Cleveland, Ohio, just fresh off of the car ride back from the U.S. Open. Welcome not only the godfather, but the Father's Day of content marketing, Mr. Joe Polizzi. Happy belated Father's Day, my friend. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, it was a, it was a wonderful nine-hour drive. Literally uh, uh, an hour just stepped out of the car, and there's nothing better than sitting in a car for nine hours and then doing a podcast. There you go. Well, maybe it'll be a little punchy. Yeah, maybe I'll finally get halfway decent at this thing because we're just (laughs) all the viewers just can't stand it anymore. No, yeah. So um, you are in uh, you're in New York, correct? Okay, I am. I've just landed in New York uh, today, and I'm sitting here safely ensconced in my hotel room, looking at this very odd gift that I just got from the hotel. Your your X-rated gift that we can't talk about. Yeah, I don't know what it is. Yeah, I don't know what it is. They give me some weird thing. (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh! Yes, so uh, and I have a take on uh, you know we when we do the rants and raves, I have a little thing on the U.S. Open, but it was it was fantastic. It was the first major golf tournament I'd ever been to, and uh, what was really really nice was they're doing back to back men's and women's U.S. Open this year at Pinehurst Number Two in North Carolina, and we went yesterday. My dad and I went yesterday to celebrate father's day and there, the women and the men were hitting off the practice tee together. And I thought, thought that was wow. really, that's just really cool. So it was, it was a lot of fun. I don't know if you're, you're not a real big golf fan, are you? I'm not even a little golf fan. No, I'm, 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 I'm not even what you would call a tiny golf fan. I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm sure you, I'm sure there are scientists who could measure the minuscule level <laughs> of which I am a golf fan, but it would be, you would need a physical particle accelerator to understand my lack of interest in golf. Well, uh, congratulations <laughs> to your kinks though. I know you're very excited oh, about yes. that. You are a hockey fan. Much. I know that. So. I am a little yeah. bit of a hockey fan. Yes. And so watching the Kings win was, was, and, and watching the Kings win in decisive fashion was also uh, very, very, and you know, and I'm, I'm going to miss a little bit. I'm going to try and watch a little bit of the USA. <laughs> They're the one match in which I think they might actually have a chance of winning. It's on like, um, it's starting in like it's, 20 minutes as on, we record yeah, this Monday starting in afternoon. like 20 minutes. It, exactly. So I'll miss a little bit of it, but uh, hopefully get down to the bar and see a little bit of it. A little later. Well, I have to say, I did. I did. Anyway. Well, I know we want. I have to say though that yeah. I did enjoy watching the Spurs beat the Miami Heat yesterday, which was. Oh, I can imagine you. Which did. was yes, a which I was a imagine. thrill. Watching 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 the sad LeBron face. I'm sure was a was sad a nice LeBron. I love whoever brought that sad LeBron face into the. Uh, yeah. And they get uh, two snaps up for that. So there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of two snaps up, let's snap up to the news here and uh, and talk about our first story. Um, this first one comes from a site called therap.com, and it's a, a site that I'm actually familiar with because it covers the entertainment business primarily. And it's the takeaways from their first ever entertainment industry, uh, what they call their first branded entertainment conference uh, in New York City, and they called it The Grill. Uh, and the Grill New York City Conference was this br- bringing together of all of these branded entertainment executives across the entire spectrum, uh, folks like Unilever and Paramount and Pepsi and Vimeo, Red Bull Media, of course, was there, Chipotle, Funny or Die, all of these companies coming together and talking about branded content. And you and I were talking in the pre-show, of course, about this sort of being an adjunct, if you will, to content marketing more broadly. And it seems to be where the ad agencies yeah. are really focusing these days. Um, what did you think about this? I mean, a, there's a couple of takeaways from this event that I thought were really interesting. But what did you take away? Well, from nothing this? new, just sort of 
stuff we stuff we are talking about already, but the whole thing about Red Bull House uh, Media House spawning imitators. I love the last line in this. This is probably not tomorrow, but uh, we think that what Red Bull House Media House is doing has Madison Avenue nervous, which. Uh, That's right. Which I'm sure that they are, but it, it's it's interesting to see that agency. Well, this is a great place for agencies, right? This is where they want. This is all that creative, that fun stuff, and it's still very camp. I mean, did, don't you get the feeling that this is still very campaign centric? This type of content, I do, and I guess that was my, you know, that was one of the sort of other takeaways that I had here, which is, you know, it's. It, it felt a little bit like looking back, you know, when you go, uh, you know, you go back to your old high school or you go back to your old middle school and you walk through the halls and it feels small. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and, and the, the building feels like smaller than it was when you were a kid there and you were running around the halls and you're like, wow, was this place really this small? It, it felt a little small to me, even though they're talking about big things. It's like, yeah, we've been this is stuff we've been talking about for they it felt like that they were discovering they're just things. talking about it now yeah like this is new right. like this is new stuff and we know better that right and and it was and it was just fascinating to me that the 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 level of wonder that seemed to be going i mean we weren't there in the room of course but the the level of wonder that seemed to be going on here about how this amazing thing called content was actually affecting business and making Madison Avenue and traditional marketing and advertising nervous and that was what was really interesting the thing that i one of the things that i took away and, and there's a study there i don't know if you saw there's a link to a study that they did sort of pre-event how advertisers must adapt in the quote unquote era of the selfie which i thought was a great title um and one of the results that came out of that was that they asked consumers the kind of content that they want to share most often. And the two, maybe not surprisingly, the two most often wanting to share is uh, about their personal lives, which is yeah. fascinating to me given where we are in the privacy uh, era, um, and also and entertainment, right? So funny, funny stuff, interesting stuff, stuff that makes you want to cry, stuff that makes you want to laugh and stuff. that So – Really, the storytelling stuff. I mean, and 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 when you think about it, it's not that big of a surprise that this. But the, just to see it sort of in a, in a study there and have them sort of, it, it made me look at it through a new lens. With them going, "Wow, this is really inter- this is great. It's all so amazing." And, and and this is Madison Avenue. Basically, this is the big entertainment companies going, "Holy crap, we need to wake up here. This content thing is for real." Well, no, the number four. So there's a list of five things, and number four was the one that got to me. Right, the smartest brands are focused on core value rather than products hence content of course but the one thing i keep thinking over and over and i had this conversation with uh, someone at an event i keynoted last week when they were talking about asked about red bull media house and i was talking about that example they've been doing it for a couple years it's a publishing company inside a red bull and the conversation went to the point i think this is what we're getting at when we're talking about building audience Red Bull, this is my opinion, and it's probably, along with a lot of my other opinions, going to be wrong. But what I think is going to happen is that Red Bull will be selling much, much more than energy drinks in the next five years. I think that's a very if – you, if you look at Red Bull as somebody that's uh, schlocking energy drinks – uh, I think you've got a small view of what they're trying to do. I think they are trying to be solutions providers for all things in this audience category that they're building out, that they're trying to build out around all this content. Uh, I think it's going to be something big, and I think that if we focus our content not on the products, which is what most companies do, but on really focusing on who is this audience target we're trying to get at and how can we build a relationship, and then – what are some other things that we could possibly sell around that to monetize this? I think that's where we're going, where I don't know. And this is just, you know, this is when I stay up at night just trying to get a handle on where brands are going. Does that mean that Coca-Cola is uh, the produce, a producer of just beverages, which we know they're not. We know they're expanding. But I, I'm trying to figure out what does that mean? What does that mean for Chipotle? Does that always mean that they need to sell more Mexican grill? Or, or is right. it something well, think, else? Yeah. I, I think it's different for every yeah. business, right? Because I absolutely would agree with you. I think I think Red Bull would be doing a disservice to itself if it didn't at some point. I mean, I, I if look if I'm the if, if I'm the CEO of Red Bull, which I'm most certainly not, but I look at it just exactly how you laid it out, and I say this this can become a portfolio. You know, the energy, the the margins, and the and the market for an energy drink like Red Bull 
is ephemeral at best, right? I mean, tomorrow they could be, you know, Monster could, you know, take over and be it and Red Bull's out. And so as a company, they've got to be thinking about like, what does their portfolio of products look like? And if all of that is built around this ecosystem of media and this audience that they have built and this engagement and goodwill that they've built in with this audience, well, then they can really try a lot of interesting experimental things with new products sure. that, you know, could build the business for the future. You know, and, 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 and so now does that work for Coca-Cola? Well, Coca-Cola has always been a much broader sort of managed a much broader portfolio of, of, of drinks, you know, other than, you know, other than Coca-Cola, of course they have water sure. and they have juice and they have all kinds of things. Um, but do they get into the sneaker business? Probably not. But could some other company? Yeah, sure. Why not? I think it's it, it strikes me that it's individual to the business about what their you know sort of thirst is for getting into this. But I, it, there's certainly no. I don't think there's any limits to it. I think it's really early on. I think one of the challenges Wet Bull has, quite frankly, is I the the thing that keeps resonating in my head was when the guy at uh, the the guy from Red Bull Media House when I was at the branded content conference I was up in Canada a few months ago where he was saying yeah we don't measure we don't we don't we don't really measure and and as you and I know coming off of our executive forum this is such a huge thing right now for content marketing to find its home in the organization and I the thing I worry about is if they're just doing it for brand recognition on the drink at some point somebody's going to go hey how do we, you know, how do we actually leverage this audience we have into understanding what we should be developing product development wise, and 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 red and them going, I don't know, we haven't been measuring. Does, is this it, whole is time. that true though? I mean, is this is it was this know. the guy the guy that know. you talked was he serious? Because I can't believe that he was totally serious. He was totally serious. Now whether he's some product, you know, creation video editing guy that's creating content for this. Uh, series. He was the, I, I believe I'm getting this right. He was the creator of that series that the, that Red Bull does um, on the, the two surfer guy or the skateboarding guys, the two skateboarding guys that, so, you know, it's a reality yeah. show where they follow them around and do stuff. And so they would, they asked, I mean, they, they, they look at stuff like views, how many views they get, but they said they don't really, they don't really look at measurement and, and ways to acquire that audience. And I mean, that's what he said. I don't know whether they actually do that or not. If he was being well, that's the but, only one I've but, ever heard of that's not that's that that it doesn't stay up late at night trying to figure out how do we measure this more effectively because we just met with fifty marketers at the leading companies and right. every one of them said that's our big challenge and here's what we're doing but we need to do better. That's so, exactly well. Right. Good, hats yeah. off to them that they don't have to measure. Good. Yeah, I mean, I mean, well, and that's where it is now, right? So you wonder, you know, so I mean, but this is that the big thing. I mean, my talk was on measurement at this branded content conference, and a lot of people came up to me afterwards, and they said, you know, we're so glad that you came here and talked about measurement because, quite frankly, at the ad agency level right now, the ad agencies are looking at this as just sort of a B-roll to what they're doing on TV, and they don't really have a method to measure it. And so it may be very well that the, they, that that Red Bull Media House doesn't really have a methodology in place, or many of them at all. Quite frankly, I mean, you know, you can even hear the underpinnings of measurement, even in it wasn't mentioned specifically in this article, but you can hear it in there. Like, you know, it's got Madison Avenue nervous, but for why are they nervous about it? Right? Is it because they can't be creative? No, it's because they can't show the business value right now. Well, it's going to get crazy because. There's all kinds of different ways. You can measure it like a publisher. You could say, here's, here's the value can. of a subscriber. And as you get, I mean, even Red Bull has parts, you know, parts of Red Bull Media House are profit centers. They're actually making money off of syndicating content. And that's going to happen more and more where you're going to look at Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola is going to license their content or they're going to get into partnership deals where they're getting money directly off of their content. There's a, and then you look at look at Kraft where they're using it for data and insights into which products they need to launch and, or uh, how can my me, how can we spend our media more effectively or our advertising more effectively. So there's I guess that's the challenge, right? There's like 72 different ways that you can measure this thing and they're just every day there's just a new way to do it that's exactly well wait till we get to my Ooh, rant good today. i can't this, that's, that's exactly on that. all right well speaking of measurement and speaking of 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 trying to figure things out interesting fun article for you and i to chit chat about uh last week so panera bread um, there was some noise made uh last week from both panera bread and the agency that 
formerly worked for them. Uh, both articles coming out of uh, bizjournals.com. Uh, the first article was, you know, published on, it looks like on the 11th. And it says, Panera ad agency quits, saying no amount of money is worth what we have to go through. And basically, it was this uh, reveal of an internal memo that was issued by the Chicago-based agency Kramer Criselt, um, where the chairman and CEO uh, basically said, yeah, not so much. And the memo, here's a quote from the memo, said, this constant last-minute shifts in direction, the behind-the-scenes politics, the enormous level of subjectivity that disregards proof of performance – all churn people at a rate that becomes much too much even in this crazy business, end quote. Um, so As agencies collectively nod their yeah, head in exactly. unison. As they, right, exactly. <laughs> and then uh, it looks like what I guess a couple of days later, uh, the Biz Journal comes out with Panera, Panera's side of the story basically going, uh, yeah, no, they didn't, they didn't uh, resign. I, I, we fired them, I guess is what he's saying. I mean, the, the funny thing to me was I saw this and he says the, this, it was the, the guy from uh, Panera Bread who is the CMO, uh, Michael Simon. He says basically, quote, uh, we decided that more than a week ago it was planned to put the account into review to find breakthrough creative. And then the agency, Kramer Cresselt in this, in this case, declined to compete for the contract. So, and I don't know how that doesn't equate to quitting, right? Because, I mean, you know, it's like your boss walking in and going, hey, uh, we're going to start interviewing for your position, you know, the one you're doing right now. And, of course, you're welcome to interview it for it as well if you like. And you go, uh, no, I'm out of here. See you later. So they can play that any yeah, way exactly. they want. But basically, they quit. They walk, They said, we're done playing in your sandbox. So I don't know. Did you? What did you think of this story? Uh, I just thought it was the, the quote that you read was the one I thought was funny because we get that all the time. I mean, we're, this is, this is advertising, right? But I mean, it happens in content right. marketing as well, where you get somebody in sales or somebody in the organization say, Oh, there's not enough product stuff in here. We're not pitching enough in here. I don't like this color orange, I, you know, whatever. And it's just, I just related so well with to the, to the last minute changes stuff. Um, so I just thought it was, it was interesting more than anything else. And, and uh, the biggest issue that I and this is right at the end of the one article you sent me here, and we'll we'll put in the show notes. But uh, Panera spends ninety four million dollars annually on advertising. I'm trying to yeah. get a feel. How much do you think that they spend on owned media? Oh, probably a a, a pittance, a, a extraordinary a yes. pittance, right? I mean one one percent maybe if even. So that. let's just pair this with the last article that we read, right? Where where Madison Avenue is getting scared. And they they know that that owned media is you know the Red Bull model if you will is coming, and Panera now spends ninety four million and they're barely spending any that we know of. Let's say even they're spending a million, which I doubt, but let's say they're spending a million. Um, wh- I just looked at this and said, "Wow, this is this is really going to to shake the entire industry when this does really really start to get some traction." And we haven't yeah. seen anything yet. And I know it's not related to the article, but that's what I took away. It's like, wow, ninety four no, million dollars. I mean it's exactly related to the article because, you know, you gotta figure of that ninety four million dollars, what percentage of it is media? Yeah. Right? What you know, ad flights and and specifically television ad flights. And so, you know, that's that's the real rub there, you know, is that because media buys, you know, for the longest, you know, for and I don't know that I don't think this agency would Panera is their media agency per se. I think it was a it was a digital agency. I think memory serves, but the the idea of media uh, in there is that's how agencies print money, right? Because they're basically buying space and then taking a commission on it. Yeah, and and so that's the that's the real threat is that a you know in an owned media world. They're not buying media anymore. They're using all that money for creative, and they're creating their own media. And so, you know, I mean, there's a there's content promotion, of course, which again we'll talk to a little uh, in a little bit. But this is this is the the the, the amount of money is not going to go up or down, but the buckets are going to shift substantially. And I think that's 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 just meaning. think about this ninety four million, and and I don't know. I'm so I'm just gonna you know throw out some numbers here, but let's say that they could probably buy the top five or six food websites and the audiences along with them for that $94 million. 
I mean, just think about that. I mean, so so. The- well, just I mean, look, they could they could probably buy the number one for five percent. Exactly, budget, that's right? what I'm they saying. Could, they could, you know could- what I mean, and then, and then and then spend another two percent promoting that website like it's never been promoted before to build that audience and the amount of intelligence and and customer insight. Uh, I know. I just don't get. I just it, it's yeah. it, it's. I did a, a presentation at the Taylor Institute of Direct Marketing, which is in a really great organization, which is at the University of Akron. And I was talking about the the build or buy scenario with content marketing right. and my prediction that I spout to anybody who'll listen to me. And I'm scratching my head. I'm like, I really don't understand why. Be- just because we've done something this way for such a long time, these brands like Panera aren't thinking about this. And I just don't you know, get you, it. You, you, you know what it is? I, I, so I had to put some thinking into this because, as you know, I'm about to go. I mean, the reason I'm in New York is because I'm going to go to I'm, – I'm, I'm visiting a consumer package yep. brand company tomorrow for an all-day advisory day where I'm sitting with them talking about their brand specifically, what they're doing from a content perspective. And so I've been spending a lot of time in the consumer package brands world over the last couple of weeks sort of researching this. Here's my theory. Because when I look at the the mix of what all of these CPG brands are doing, it's 99% of it is in paid media, right? So if we look at paid, owned, and earned, right? 99% of what they do is in paid media, which is in their world, right? Remember looking from their lens, these brand managers, it's low risk and it's known. I know I know what I know the devil I'm dealing with and it's a low risk opportunity because I know it's going to produce 0.5% better than I did yesterday or with a little bit better creative I can do a little bit more or whatever yeah. it is right so I know it the un it's it, the the owned media there's a perception that and I know this because having talked with some CPG brand managers, there there's a perception that it's really hard and expensive and unknown to do what Red Bull Media House is doing, because you know they're doing TV series and they're doing feature films and they're doing you know and what Chipotle is doing is amazingly expensive and hard, and they go it's really unknown and I don't know how to measure it and it's really expensive, and so it just fits in that upper right quadrant of unknown expensive and hard and so they're like i'm not going to touch yeah. it until i until i can figure it out and so there it's just a fear thing i think for the most part so it sounds like we need a few more cases out there and then we could see the the tide roll i i do i think or and 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 ba- and honestly it's a it's also a shift in how companies go to market because there's they're sort of this perpetual motion machine that's in place right now, which is the brand managers feed it this way, and this is the way the sales materials get done, and the agency works this way, and it's just, quote, unquote, how many times have we heard, well, this is the way we've always done it? Yep. And and that's, there's this sort of Yeah, it's the I hired, yeah, I'm, of, I'm hiring IBM theory, right? Right. I, 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 this is the way the company has always done it. They brought me in to keep the machine running, go, you know, it's time to make the donuts, right? So I go in and I, I basically do my job and nobody wants to be the guy or gal who says, you know what, this is stupid. Let's just upset this whole thing. Let's change everything. Let's try, let's try something completely new that we have no idea what we're doing. It could fall flat. So I think we have to leave this to the listeners where they have to either themselves, or if there's an agency listening to this right now that you have to go and we need a model for this. We want somebody to take that big, juicy advertising budget, <laughs> and we're going to put together an M&A scenario, and we're going to start picking off audiences, uh, and uh, And I think that you know, it's going to start with – we're going to have to lead the way in this, Robert. It's going to have to be yeah, our well, listeners. I, well, that's what we're that's, here. That's, that's why, why we do that's, this that's, thing. That's, that's, this, is, this, is why we're, this is why we do what we do. <laughs> All, All right. right. Moving on to our next story. So this is – there's a couple of stories here that I really wanted to get your take on. Once again, um, from the publishing business and sort of moving into the marketing practitioner world, um, as our worlds tend to do collide uh, frequently. So there was two articles in particular. So the, the headline of the one is, Will BuzzFeed Inform the Next Generation? Which really talks about the way that news is changing um, and does so in a way to say, look, is BuzzFeed the future of news and how news is going to be consumed by the kids? Um and it's paired with this other article that comes from themediabriefing.com, which is called The Disruption in News. And, and it talks about a Reuters Institute uh, digital news report that 
shows a lot of different changes in the way that smartphones and social media and all of this is being used in the way that news specifically is covered. So, I mean, I had a couple of small takeaways from this from the marketer's perspective, especially those that are focused on the news, you know, sort of covering topical things. But what did you think of these two articles? You know, I actually thought about it for a while. Could uh, almost like, a, I don't know, I was thinking of uh, the movie Total Recall. And like the, the, you know, as they were going through it, he's watching the news programs. It's by this very sensationalist news, almost like an entertainment weekly type thing. And he's watching this. And this is the kind of thing that feeds their news all day long. And I actually think that, are you erasing something? Oh, sorry. (laughs) You're. I was writing, I was taking copious notes of your, of your thoughts. I thought it was, I'm like, oh my God, I'm hearing things again. (laughs) Um, so I'm, I'm thinking of could, in 10 years, the the majority of audiences out there be getting their information from a BuzzFeed, like in a sensational world. I think it's it's a it's a possibility. But here's the here's the real thing that I'm thinking about. BuzzFeed. Look at what Huffington Post did. Right. Huffington Post started right. in a very narrow niche and a very different, uh, distinct type of how we're going to cover the news. And now they cover in, I don't know how many different, 60 different verticals that they're in. It's probably more than that these days. A lot of different verticals. BuzzFeed starts with this very sensational, gets the in, gets the funding, and now they start hiring journalists and drove. And now they're they're going to start to go up against the New York Times and the Wall Street Journals of the world and try to cover that kind of information, but do it in a way that they feel is more engaging. Yeah. Um, so what can, what, what's the takeaway for brands on this one? Uh, and it has, I think it has a lot to do with the post that I just wrote today, which is called, if your content marketing is for everybody, it's for nobody. And I think yeah. that Buzzfeed has a, had a real good understanding of its audience kind of wrapped around. And, and there's, I think we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but instead of demographics really focusing on, okay, who's, what's this audience, their interests, what's their behavior, what's their passions, what's their problems, and let's focus the persona around that and create content around that. And I think they've done a really, really good job of that. And, of course, that feeds into your other uh, piece of news, which basically is mobile and social media is key to making this thing work. And the idea that if you are not... Uh, creating content that's immediately shareable, that's interesting, that's accessible. That's kind of just, it's not even like, oh, you should do that. You just have to do this today. You have to make sure it's responsive. And you have to make sure that if you're going to create a piece of content that it is easily shareable. And you and I know that the majority of companies we deal with, that's not the case. And it's it would seem yeah. to be, oh, of course companies are doing that. They're not doing it. So what what is your take? I think well, it, it's 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 along those same lines. I mean, the thing the things that stood out to me was, and this is a story that we actually didn't put in uh, this week's this week's coverage. But there was another story I was reading this week talking about. Um, all right, here we go. Ding ding ding. Na- native advertising, um, and how uh, the, the there was a it was a publisher, and I'm forgetting who it was off the top of my head. But there was a publisher who was now assigning their A list writers to write native advertising posts, which basically said, you know, look, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. We're actually going to not set a separate team to do this. We're actually going to have our A-list writers write native advertising uh, uh, content, which That's is... The, isn't that the Guardian's you know, model? It, I think yeah. it is. It, it wasn't the Guardian in this particular case, but it was. But it is. The, but it is the Guardian's model is exactly right. And so what struck me about that was, is when we start thinking about the news and we start thinking about the BuzzFeed type of news in particular the one from the other article the disruption in the news from the media briefing piece the 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 quote that got me which was young people much prefer online news and rarely engage in depth with traditional formats such as the quote-unquote appointment to view television bulletin or the morning newspaper and so i think what we have to understand is is that facts as they as we are used to them in other words old guys like you and i the way we grew up with news is changing and the facts themselves are not, you know, are not interesting. They're, it's not enough to just report the news. You now have to do so in a way that is either entertaining or has a strong point of view or has some level of make me want to pay attention because, quite frankly, they can get the facts anywhere. They'll get yeah. the facts from, you know, from, from Google. But if you're going to actually attract them and, be, and create a loyal audience with news – 
you actually have to do something with it. You actually have to add value to it, which is going to sound so weird to most journalists, right? You don't add value to the news. The news is the news. It's like, well, but no, it's shifting. It's changing, I think. Everything's entertainment? Is that basically? I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, I, yeah, I, the, 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 the cynic in me says, yeah, that's what, that's kind of what it is. The, the, I guess the more glasses fully full kind of guy would say, I think there's value that needs to be added whether or not, you know, maybe it's just insightfulness or uh, in depth or a thought leadership type of position to the news. You know, it's like I, you know, I get my news from a very few set of places that I trust. And because, and it's not because they deliver any different facts to me, but they do so in a way that engenders a, a meaning well, for me. So I, I, I think the one, well, a couple things on, on the Buzzfeed one, first of all, what Buzzfeed should teach us all is that we need to spend a lot of time on our headlines. I mean, a yes. lot of time, well, like sure. And, and yes. what they've done, and we covered this in many of the podcast episodes, but the, the amount of time that they go through and people that are in the review process about which type of headline that they should choose and they do the A-B tests and all that kind of stuff. That, I, that is so critical because it, because a lot of the – we see a lot of marketers out there spending all this time on the content that nothing happens because the That's headline right. is terrible. Remember, the headline is like a magazine cover. The goal is for yeah. it to be opened, in this case clicked on or shared or whatever the case is. The second thing is – and I'll and then I'll get off the rant about the, the buying thing. I actually think that a company like a Pepsi-Cola – Will buy BuzzFeed. I think. Dun, dun, I think that's. Dun. I think that's going to happen. You heard it here. You heard it here first. I, I think that it's 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 twenty four months away or inside that. I think it's it, and it might not be a Pepsi. I think it'll be a CPG type company. It'll be somebody. It, it makes. Could be Red Bull. It could be Red Bull. Could be Red it Bull. could be absolutely be Red Bull. For some reason, because of the entertainment feel of a BuzzFeed, and if you look at the entertainment feel of what's on uh, Pepsi's ver- various sites, if you look at Pepsi Cola or uh, whether you look at Pepsi Max, depending on what country it is, very heavy entertainment focused, even way yeah. more so than Coca-Cola, way more so than Red Bull. So that's why I think that because that's that's what BuzzFeed kind of cut its teeth on. I think that's what what the fit. I think that's what you're going to see. So I think that's I think that's a very smart observation. I, I, I would not I would not disagree with that one little bit. And they could take that little, you know, the the billion dollars they're probably spending in advertising. And although, what's BuzzFeed's valuation? I mean, the other article you talked about, they said Vice's Vice Media's valuation is a billion dollars now, or, or Time Warner is going to put in a billion, a couple of billion. Oh my yeah, god, a couple of billion dollars. It's crazy. I mean, that and and that goes all the way back to the first article we talked. That the guy from Vice Media was actually at that rap, that uh, grill event. And he talked about how he was getting all this money and that they were going to do, I think, $500 million in revenue this year. I mean, just – they're, they're, yeah, Vice Media is, 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 is an up-and-comer here. I actually just wanted to find – oh, here – so here's the, here's the – New York Times. New York Times valuation. This is June 16th. You know, the market closed. Market cap is $2.29 billion. So you, For BuzzFeed. No, no, no. This is for the oh, New York for- Times. The of market the cap of the New York Times is $2.29 billion. We're saying, we, we just read the article before, that said that Vice Media is valued at $2 billion. Well, I don't know what BuzzFeed's at. So <laughs> It's less than that, but I here's But this is how fast things shift. So I if know. you're saying, oh, no, 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 a company like a BuzzFeed's not going to overtake what New York Times is doing. Yeah, in in right, six right. months, yeah. watch out. Right. The valuations right. of these new media companies you. are going through the roof so yeah it's crazy absolutely well speaking of through the roof uh this next article comes from our friends at skyward see what i did there how 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 i did that anyway um (laughs) the content marketing strategy proves technology's worth in today's marketplace um as i mentioned it comes from our friends over at skyward it's a blog post where they talk about a study that i actually meant to for us to cover a couple of weeks ago uh came out from dnn formerly known as dotnet nuke the web content management community uh software platform um now known as dnn that's nice um and uh, yeah, and they came out with this study in February 
Um, but then these guys just wrote about this last week, and I, and I thought it was an interesting thing to talk about, both the numbers here as well as their sort of take on it, which the study found that – and this was an interesting – I've used this actually in a couple of um, – presentations that I've, that I've given of late, 70% of marketers say their craft or the practice of marketing has become more challenging despite the new technology that's available to them, or even in some cases because of this new technology. And I, that's something that I absolutely find to be true, um, just anecdotally working with CMOs and directors of marketing and VPs yeah. of marketing is that the the, the amount of technology that the marketing department now has is in some cases hampering the ability to do anything with it. Um, these guys go on to talk about uh, the, the, the main point of this article where they say that customer acquisition at 87%, customer retention at 86% remain the top, you know, basically the top of the funnel and the bottom of the funnel remain the brand's top priorities in 2014. And that's not dissimilar than we see in our own research, um, which... Um, and basically, their ultimate point is that you know the way you use technology is what's important, not the technology that you actually use. And I don't disagree with that at all. What did you What did you well, think? Well, one saw? thing. I mean, I totally agree with you, and it it may it does confirm a lot of the things that we're seeing. But here's the thing between what marketers report and their behavior, and we've oh, seen sure, this a sure. lot: customer retention. So basically, say you know, DNN found that customer acquisition eighty seven percent, customer retention eighty six percent remain brand's top priorities. They say that. Everybody's focused on lead gen, demand gen, customer acquisition. I I rarely find a company that's that's developing thoughtful content marketing strategies for customer retention because it's not glamorous. It takes time. There's this this demand. They have to hit the numbers. How many leads are we bringing in? They got to feed the beast in, in the sales funnel, all that kind of stuff. That's where I think most of the focus is, especially if you're a public company and you've got to meet the you know quarterly budgets, whatever the case is, quarterly numbers. That's where I think it's it's too bad, and I, I would like to see more of a focus on real customer retention because I think that's where the opportunity is today, focusing on our current customers that we already have a relationship with, and how do we turn them into brand subscribers, as you like to say, and help yep. us with our marketing. It makes sense yeah, to do is, that, but we don't do that. It's a, it's an incredibly important point because and, – and and somebody actually tweeted to us last week, I think, that they had listened to the show and had mentioned this where they talked about you know, it's, 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 it's hard to make a business case for content marketing when you've got you know, a quarterly result to, to, to meet. Right, so you've got to produce meaningful results within three months, or you know, or else. And so how, you know, so and the question I believe in the tweet was basically, how do you do that, right? And you know, beyond the sort of easy answer that I would say of you know, look, if we if we as a business can't look beyond one quarter for anything we do, then we need to rethink why we're in the business yeah. to begin with. But but beyond that, looking at content marketing, the needle is so eh, not so easy, much easier to move to pour in more stuff at the top than it is to save more stuff at the bottom. It just, it, it doesn't take as long. And so I think the reason, and again, this speaks right to our CPG discussion, you know, 10 minutes ago where you you look at these marketers who have never historically had the responsibility for customer loyalty. And now they do because of all of the different channels that customers now have expectation of communicating with the brand through social media, blogs, the corporate website, mobile, all of these things now, customers expect to be able to go solve my problem, and now marketing goes, um, I got to do that, and I now I'm semi responsible for customer loyalty. How do we? They don't understand how to do that. I know how to do ads, but I don't know how to make customers more loyal. Mm-hmm. Well, content's a huge opportunity for that, but it takes time because you've actually got to put those processes into place, and I think that's one of the one of the big reasons that you don't. That's, see that. That's so true. That it just got me thinking. I, I less is last week. And after I did my presentation, I got a question because one in one of the parts of the presentation, I talked about building, you know, becoming the leading niche provider of information for whatever specific audience you're talking about. And we want to go right. as niche as we possibly can so we can be as relevant as we possibly can. And the question was, well, if you go that niche, uh, I'm not building up enough audience to make it worthwhile. And I said, okay, let's have this discussion. I said, how much is enough? Like, how what what's the number is it is it a thousand people is it a million people is it somewhere in between and he like was sort of dumbfounded and i said 
you know what I said? I you know I said I've worked on programs where we only targeted two hundred people. Those right. those each of those people had buying power of millions of dollars that could move the organization in incredible ways. Are you telling me if we if we affected one or two of those people, it wouldn't have an impact on the business? We're only talking about two people. Now, right. so I didn't. I mean, that's a very 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 niche example, but. We get so in, and you know, we get so focused on numbers and amounts, and of course, we look at Google Analytics, and you talk about this. Oh, the chart's got to go up and to the right, and all this stuff. And I think that's that's a big issue too, where we really should focus sometimes the few. And that's where I would say, from the pilot program, running a pilot program, and getting that buy-in, and really focusing on a small audience that you can say, okay, here's what we're going to try to do with this small audience: run the pilot for three to six months, get some feedback, and then roll it out to a, a, a larger audience base. Once you get somebody to buy in to say, oh, okay, yeah, let's do that. Because if you run it like a pilot and you call it a pilot, you'll you'll get more uh, people buying in because they don't have to make such a commitment. It's such a, it's such a great, I mean, it's, it's, it's such an important point, you know, this, I mean, as I, we say this in every, in every workshop we do, you don't have to be big, you have to be remarkable. And when you focus in on the audience that matters, I mean, I tell this story all the time. I love the story of of Cisco and their network effect um, documentary series, which was a very simple seven part documentary series that they created focused on not trying to go viral with it, but actually focused on targeting C-level people in their target, the target businesses. So, I mean, we're talking about less than a thousand people that they're trying to target with this big content marketing approach. And they got it. They got, you know, four, five, six meaningful meetings and ultimately business from these large enterprises based on a content marketing approach that you would normally go, oh yeah, we're trying to build an audience of millions. No, in this case, they were trying to build an audience of 10 of 15 of 20 and make meaningful, you know, uh, make meaning with these guys so that they would actually respond to a call to action to say, call us up and let's talk. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's why influencer strategies are tough. Like doing, creating content marketing programs to influencers, because sometimes you're talking about five. I mean, our good friend Drew Davis, uh, and I can't remember the case study, but he was working with a client that was targeting one influencer with content. Yeah. And I'm like, that's just brilliant. But most organizations are a little bit too tepid to go in that direction. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, moving on to our next and our last story, actually, uh, for this week. Uh, it, basically, this was, you know, we couldn't go a, a whole episode, and I've already brought it up native ads. But this was a really interesting article that came out of Ad Age this week, um, written by a woman, Judy Shapiro, who's the CEO of Engage Simply, which is a social media engagement company. Um and the title of the article is, Will Native Ads Save the Soul of Digital Advertising? And this comes out of a, she attended the conference, the OMA uh, Native Ad Conference. Uh, it, and it was, I guess, a conference within the Internet Week last, last month. Um, and what she said was that she basically, she was sitting in the audience and she heard this ad tech executive basically proclaim, digital banner ads work, they keep publishers afloat. And she was taken aghast at that because keep quote, the quote, keeping publishers afloat is, as in her words, hardly a ringing endorsement. And it basically highlighted to her how differently the technology people and advertisers look at the world, basically that if digital advertising engagement rates are really falling, they're falling every, for everyone. In other words, basically digital advertising is now failing for publishers, agencies, advertisers, and of course, consumers. It's now game over for digital advertising. She then goes on a panel with that sort of idea in mind and asks what I think is the intriguing question. And what, Joe, what I want to get your take on here is the intriguing question she asked was, will turning native advertising into programmatic units? And just a quick primer here, programmatic units basically means this new idea of sort of algorithmically doing media buys out on different media properties. And this is a big thing, programmatic ad buying. So will turning native advertising into programmatic units literally destroy the quality of native content? So what do you think? Do you, do you think that's true? I think it could be true. I think it could. Well, we talked about this before and I want to get yeah. your take as well. But so as I think about it, if we take the idea of, let's say, our native content that's, I'm assuming, created for a very specific audience. And we say, okay, let's find as many of these types of audiences as we can and make it as broad as we can to justify putting it through the program in the first place and making it 
you know, quote on air quote programmatic, then you're going to have to water it down. It's not going to be as relevant as it could be if you were doing it, let's say, for a BuzzFeed audience or an ad age audience or our audience, whatever the case is. And the more irrelevant it's going to be, uh, the less it's going to perform. And, the, and I guess the other thing that I thought was interesting and I want to get your take on, and this is in the comments, is native advertising performing well because it's content or is it performing well right now mostly because it's new? In, or in a new form. I know native advertising isn't right. new, but it's it's right. coming to them in a new form in in a lot of cases, either in stream or in formerly display advertising that wasn't do anything. Well, the more important question is what does performing well mean? That's a good question. Yeah. I think I think I think they're measuring it. I mean, from what we see, they're measuring it through more click engagement. More, yeah, more click throughs, right. more yeah, more time. Did they read it? Did did they read yeah. it? Yeah, did they read yeah. it? Which which I hate, by the way, because you know, basically saying, Oh, this piece of content performs so much better than this banner ad and because people read it, it's like, Are you kidding me? I mean, one was a banner ad that took me two and a half seconds to read, and the other was a blog post that took me three minutes to read. Even if I'm Superman, you know, I'm just going to take me longer. It doesn't mean I'm more engaged. Yeah. Well, you you it just always said it took me longer to read it. I love it. You always made this comment about judging Facebook lights likes count. And you you always right. said, hey, well, if some you know if people have to like your page in order to make a negative comment, so maybe that's right. <laughs> is this yeah. really I mean, good? Is that well? It's the same. It's this. You see this all the time. You see it on websites now, which is most popular articles, right? So you see this widget on the side of a lot of websites, which is most popular articles, and the way the most popular articles are uh, measured are based on the number of comments and the number of page views that it's gotten, and which could be directly the opposite. It's not the most popular. It's just the most viewed. Yeah. It, basically, it could be people going viral, going, "Look how ridiculous yeah. this is!" Horrible, or they could be commenting this on is, how bad it is, or yeah. exactly. And and basically, you're just saying, "Hey, look at look how stupid we are." Um, yeah, but to me, uh, you know, so where, where I see this is is that I see it's a real problem because there's an inherent tension between looking at a piece of content as a unit, as an ad unit, and then expressing the creativity that we need to actually develop deeper engagement with it. So. There's this there's a tension there, right? So it's it's not technically impossible to make a blog post a unit, an ad unit. It's just a very long ad unit, right? There's an image, and then there's a byline, and then there's a abstract, and then there's a body of an article, and there are comments, and that can be turned into a programmatic unit that could be bought and sold on an open marketplace where self serve people go in, you post an ad, blah blah blah. To, I think that provides incredible risk to the advertiser, you know, the publisher, because uh, because the publisher at that point has to assume that all content is equal, like they do all ads are equal, right? And But we know for a fact that people don't judge ads in a magazine or ads on a website in the same way they look at content mm -hmm. on a website, right? If I see the, the Scientology story in The Atlantic shows us that, you know, that that in, in full color. And the other thing is, is that it makes the marketer much less... Uh, uh, reliant on being creative and standing out, which of course, as you know, I, I'm a huge proponent of. If we're going to do native advertising, it's not about seamlessly blending into the publication. It's about completely standing out in the publication. And so I think both of those things inherently mean, you know, these guys actually sat around a round table and said, literally out loud, because it says it in the article, how do we not screw native up? And I, my main point is, don't make it programmatic. First of all, that's how you not. That's how, that's the first step to not screwing it up. And then the second is, how do you scale it? I don't know. So she, there's actually these five key takeaways that she uh, that, that she goes through, which I think are just great. Just generally speaking, um, I'll just go through them really quickly here. It's that she says basically contextual marketing, which she says encompasses content marketing and native advertising. I'd say they're all the same thing, but. Nevertheless, um, she says it's just at the very beginning of development. And so there's tons of opportunities for creativity and innovation. She says, two, managing the value exchange of native advertising is central to maintaining the superior performance of native ads versus banner ads. In other words, it's a different kind of value. So we need to look at it as such. Programmatic is not the enemy, but a tool that has a long innovation curve ahead of it. In other words, maybe it's possible down the road, but certainly let's not look at that yep. first. My takeaway from that. Language is still evolving to capture these new marketing capabilities. And while industry organizations like the IAB are working on standardizing terms, 
it's still a fluid landscape and you and I know this all too well, right? The content marketing and native advertising and, you know, branded content and all brand storytelling and journalism and blah, blah, blah. The, all this stuff is still in a, in, in a, in a big, uh, hurricane of, of trying to get normalized in terms of term definition. And then her last, which I really like, is creating intimate marketing at scale is an emerging capability. From a practical perspective, this means that native advertising will struggle short term because it is caught between the limited programmatic technology today and the ad serving innovation of tomorrow. And I think that's really it. To me, we need to, this is where I go back to my post where I say native advertising is neither of those things. It should not be looked at as an ad. It is a it is a piece of content like it has always been, advertorial. It is treat, created as a piece of creative that is then put into the native uh, experience. And so to me, I don't think it ever becomes programmatic, but, you know, I've been wrong. Well, I think before. it's what just to finish this one up, uh, you know, you've got the guy from IBM, John Fredette, who's the manager of global media and sponsorship marketing at IBM. You're going to have some silo bashing going on here because this person yes, obviously is, is probably right. not in charge of, of content creation and distribution and john's saying boy i want to do a lot more native if we knew how to do it so this is i mean there's some budgets for this and uh and there's also going to be some real uh disruption that needs to happen inside an organization because these two people aren't talking to each other i can tell you that right that's now. that's exactly yeah. That's exactly right. All right. Well, speaking of native advertising, I am so, so excited about our sponsor for this week because it's a return sponsor and I just absolutely adore it. You know who the best kind of sponsors are? Return sponsors. That's absolutely true. I'm just telling you that. Uh, Once again, (laughs) this whole marketing, once again, is sponsored by our good friends at Emma. Email marketing for the modern brand. Uh, featuring mobile responsive templates, social integration tools, and our our favorite concierge services. Uh, We were promoting, which we both love, the 18 email stats, uh, which, by the way, if you want to get it, is uh, bit.ly.com slash email dash PNR. But this week, uh, we are promoting a very, very cool webinar that they put on called the 8-Second Challenge email marketing for the shrinking attention span, which I think is funny. It's as uh, I, I think you're aware, we probably talked about it before. It's official that the average attention span for a human being is now shorter than that of a goldfish. <laughs> that's her. Mine has always been. Shorter that's, than I, exactly, I guess. That's is that it. men or women or how does that, how do they really do that? Uh, but, right. but definitely check this thing out. It's fantastic content. I can't oh, wait. It's, to check it's it really out. good. I, and I've only checked out a little bit of it because we just got the, the creative on this. So we're going to check it out uh, right after we get off of the show. Um, I want you to download it at bitly.com slash PNR dash Emma eight, the number eight. So PNR dash E M M A the number eight that's at bitly.com please check that out of course we'll have that in the show notes as well and a, once again a big rousing uh, a round of applause and thank you for uh, for emma for keeping us afloat and you can check them out at myemma.com. Absolutely. I love the fact that there's an eight at the end of that URL because that uh, assumes that there's going to be a nine and a 10 and an 11 and a 12 <laughs> after that. And that is my favorite thing. All right. Moving on to our rants and raves. Favorite part of the show um, where Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave on something that has either got us all hot and bothered or something we want to show a little love to. Um, I'm going to go first uh, as um, uh, and I because our mine is very, very short. Mine, I have to make up a new word for this because it's a rant ave. It's a, it's both a rant and a rave. Wow. Um, yeah, and I, and it's very, very quick. Um, I'm so I'm ranting at this guy named Robert Rose, um, who who did something that uh, just really annoys me. Um, and here's here's what it is. So when we were in Australia last year, not this year, but the, the but last year, 2013, we saw this wonderful campaign called Dumb Ways to Die. Um, and I use the word campaign specifically because that's exactly what it was. It was it was shown off as an example of content marketing and a content marketing approach. Um, but it was basically a – and if you haven't seen it, you've got to go look at it. It's a wonderful video. It's gone completely viral. And it's the Dumb Ways to Die characters – um, became like just huge. It was a huge campaign for them. It ended up winning all kinds of awards and all kinds of stuff. And it was a huge thing for the Metro down in Melbourne, Australia. 
And it was wonderful. It was done by McCann. It was a great, great campaign. And it was a campaign, though. It wasn't really a, a content marketing approach. It was a very clever campaign done very well. And I used to use it, and this is the part where I rant on myself. The, the, I used to use this as an example of why it's not always a good idea to go viral. And the reason was because it went completely viral. It hit iTunes and it sold, you know, it ended up, all this music, it got out there and it was worldwide phenomenon. But it's for a train station. It's a safety campaign for a train station in Melbourne, Australia. So basically everybody that viewed it outside the locale of Melbourne, Australia, there's no relevance to them at all other than, oh, it's this cute ad campaign. And my point at the time was this puts them in a really weird position of having to use this because it got so big and they become so identified with it that going viral can actually have an interesting backlash or side effect, which is you got to get sucked into the creative direction of a content marketing or akin, in this case, campaign approach that you try. Well, here we are, uh, and we'll put this link in the show notes. Um, AdAge has just basically shown uh, this company in Canada, actually, that licensed the characters as well as the music for their own television campaign. So this is Metro, the train people down in Melbourne, Australia, who have now apparently made a business of getting some of their costs or all of their costs or some – you know, some percentage of yeah. cost back by licensing this content that they created out, including the creation of plush dolls, including licensing the music for other campaigns for other insurance companies in other parts of the world. And so uh, the fact that I didn't see that is makes me goofy and stupid. Um, I should have seen that. And that's uh, so I'm ranting on myself for not being able to be that observant and so hats off to them in a big rave um, for doing that and actually using the content for all of the things that we talk about here in terms of making content much more useful for your business um, in, other than just using it for advertising. And they're going to they're gonna so sell the go. plush dolls, which are, ador which are adorable, know, by the way. And, and they're adorable. I know, and, they're and, so cool. And Hot Topic. So they'll go uh, right next to – I know right where they're going to go. Right next, right between uh, Doctor Who and Adventure Time. That's, that's, exa exactly. that's exactly – you know it. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. where they're going to go. And it should it's be It's so great. It's that's so great. great. So, so, yeah. So hats off to them for doing that and such great uh, work. And uh, big uh, potato in my ear for not being able to spot. Who knew? That. I didn't see that coming yeah. either. So especially yeah. the stuffed animals. So my, yeah. um, so mine is a rant, and I've been. I'm probably going to write an article about this in the next week. Uh, but the, the rant is not. I had a great time at the U.S. Open with my dad. Great way to spend Father's Day. Here's what I don't get. So those of you that are not involved in golf. You'd know, especially since since that me yeah. Well, so so Tiger Woods, uh, they're the number one golfer, has been hurt a little bit lately, so he hasn't been playing. He didn't play in the U.S. Open, second major. He's missed. Uh, their their numbers have been down uh, from a viewership standpoint for a while since that happened. Uh, of course, they didn't help him, and you probably didn't care about this, but it was such a landslide victory by uh, Martin Keimer from Germany uh, that. Nobody was. I think that last I saw, the the numbers, network numbers were down twenty six percent to thirty five percent or something, way way down, year over year. So golf is hurting. Of course, it's up against World Cup. It's up against. Right. Uh, it's up against the NBA Finals. It's up against NHL. I mean, but this is one. You know, they have four big events a year. U.S. Open is is like they have four Super Bowls. This is one of them. So we go in. We can't. You can't even take a cell phone. You can't even take a mobile phone in. Oh, my god! So we couldn't even bring. We went through a metal detector. They check you out, make sure you're not bringing anything in. So no one in the entire place has anything that they can take pictures, that they can share. And this is what killed me. There were so many amazing opportunities on Saturday and Sunday for people to take pictures. Hey, I'm at the U.S. Open. We're enjoying golf right. as a family. Here's our picture next to Little Putter Boy and all kinds of stuff, all kinds of opportunities to share with people that secondary audience that needs to um, understand that golf is pretty cool, that they might enjoy that they might want to watch it, they might want to get involved right. in it. This is not, by the way, for the people that were there. The people that were there are pure golf lovers. They're spending a lot of money. They're there with their families. They already believe. Golf doesn't have a problem getting those people. They need to get the people that are on the edge. And I think social media would help them do that. 
And it was just funny because so basically no social media. They're not leveraging their audience, their their customers at all as part of the marketing audience to share all this. And then I watch last night as the Spurs beat the Heat, and as they're showing the picture. You could see everyone in the stadium holding yeah. their phone up, taking pictures, Absolutely. and probably sharing it immediately. And this is why the oh, NBA yeah. is not hurting near as bad. And this is right. why the NFL doesn't hurt because they don't ban this stuff. But here it is. Even in events that that the PGA lets people go in and have your cell phone, they say you can't take pictures. It is a big problem. Like I think the PGA has to change this right away. So my takeaway for those of you that aren't members of the uh, the PGA or the USGA would be, are you making sure that your customers can share your content, that your audience can yeah. share your content? Because obviously they're spending millions, hundreds of millions of dollars on putting a first-class event, and they did. They put on a first-class event, and nobody can share it, and nobody can talk about it. It's a big problem. It is a big problem. Absolutely. Wow. That's unbelievable. So, yeah. So story to come. I'm going to write an article about it. It's going to it's going right, to be fantastic. to the yeah to the CEO of the USGA slash PGA. And, nice. Uh, so is. you'll get invited. I'm back. sure you'll I will. Oh, they're going to love me. They're going to love me. <laughs> All right. Well, now it is time for a very quick uh, this old marketing as we are running a little short on time. But uh, but wanted to talk about. Something that as as I was doing the, my discovery for uh, the, all the CPG work that I've been doing over the last couple of weeks, um, I started revisiting some of the stuff that we've talked about a lot um, in terms of, uh, you know, the uh, Procter & Gamble, um, both the Being Girl site and the Homemade Simple site, which, of course, we've used as examples before in workshops and presentations, and you've talked about it a lot. But the really interesting things here, I mean, I didn't know, for example, that the Being Girl site was actually started 14 years ago. It was started in 2000. That's amazing. Um, I didn't know I didn't amazing? know it was that old. That's amazing. Yeah, so tell tell your story quickly about the Being Girl site because I just think it's a really well, be, great Well, you know, example. Being Girl, not that I spend a lot of time on beinggirl.com, but the Being Girl <laughs> site targets adolescent women, adolescent female going through certain changes in their life. And by the way, I have two boys, so I wouldn't even know anything about this stuff. But uh, they they basically are trying to be a solution site to help girls go through this these situations. And they actually, this is back in 08 or 09, they did an independent study with Forrester, and they found that that site, to targeting that audience of adolescent women, was four times more effective than any advertising program they've run. So wow. that's a really amazing, I mean, they're building a relationship with these girls who are going through a tough time trying to figure this whole thing out. They've got lots of questions. It's, of course, a content site slash community. Where these where these women can talk to other women, it's kind of like in that case the Navy for Moms site, where if you have you know if you've got a son that it's going in the Navy, you need to be on Navy for Moms to figure out what's going on there. Same thing with this one. If you're you know being girl, and there's I I'm just from the the usefulness of that site, it's been tremendous, and and then of course they're doing that on Homemade Simple as well. I, well, the, and I was just going to say Homemade Simple is. Uh, you know, six million registered uh, consumers on that site, opt-in emails that they have the ability to get consumer insight out of. And I didn't know this until I started diving a little deeper. They've actually they've got their own TV show now. They've integrated their own television show through a homemade simple television show, which has a home on the uh, Oprah Network now. Oh, nice! Which just got a yeah, it just got its uh, a daytime Emmy nomination. So we talked a little bit a while ago about the Lego movie. Maybe Oscar, being the first. Emmy. Oh, Oscar, yeah. yeah. So here we go. And here's a PNG driven show that might get a daytime Emmy, uh, Emmy Award. Um, they also have a new book, uh, a big, wonderful coffee table book that's now available um, in your favorite online or offline bookstore, which is all the homemade simple recipes and stuff that they're doing. And then all of that's integrated. So just talk about an integrated program. It's just it's just really incredible to see that complete ecosystem of content working for them um, and and something that's really, really just... They're really good. I mean, they really do have a good model for building on a platform in those sites. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, where, so I'm in New York. You're home this week? Or where uh, you actually, you know, I'm, I'm going to be home for 24 hours. I'm, I'm headed to D.C. tomorrow. I'm speaking. I'm keynoting at the Association uh, for Association Executives Marketing Conference tomorrow. So that'll be oh, – I love hanging out fantastic. with the association folks. So that should be fun. And you're in New York this week but then headed to Europe, I'm right? I'm in New York. I am in New York for, yeah, just a couple of days here. And then I'm off to London to go speak at the Museum of Brands for North Plains. North nice. Plains, the digital asset management company. 
um, is having an event in at the Museum of Brands in London, and I'm the keynote speaker there, and I'm super excited about that. And then I'm off to Amsterdam for two uh, uh, two events. One is to launch a book for author Carlene Potsma, who is uh, launching her book uh, in uh, in Holland, uh, which will be exciting. And then Core Hospice and Bob Ort are having the content marketing festival on the beach, uh, which I don't, I've never been to the beach of Holland. So I'll, I'll let you know how that goes. Um, but I'm the keynote speaker there. Remember if you're going to Holland, you have to wear orange. I, well, and they'll be playing of course, while I'm there. So I, I, I suspect it'll be, it'll be quite, uh, it'll, it'll be quite the spectacle. Well, it sounds like we'll be doing our next episode from, uh, you'll be doing it from, from I'll be in Holland. Europe. There I will, you go. I, I'll absolutely let you know how the museum of brands was. Okay, that is it for Joe Polizzi. This is Robert Rose signing off. And won't you be like Doug Beamler wearing? He's at uh, Twitter handle at DougDubsUOR or Pierpaolo Manilo. I don't even know if I pronounced that right, but he's at at Pierpa88, P-I-E-R-P-A-88. Follow them on Twitter, won't you? Because they hashed us out. Hashtag this old marketing. They tweeted us up. And that should be you. So follow them. Or, you know, if you've got your own question, send an email, hashtag us up at This Old Marketing, or send an email to This Old Marketing at ContentInstitute.com. If you like this episode number 31, we hope you'll consider subscribing via iTunes or Stitcher.com. All those links are on the show notes available at ThisOldMarketing.com. Remember, folks, it's your story to tell. Tell it well. See you next week on This Old Marketing. 